This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Today, I will be speaking with Pratik Pandari Pandey, MD, FCCM, on organ repair and critical illness. Dr. Pandari Pandey is a professor of anesthesiology and surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Dr. Pandri Pandey. Thank you for having me here. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? So, as far as a conflict of interest, I do have a research grant in collaboration with the National Institutes of Health from Pfizer, which uh, makes dexmedetomidine, and it's uh, related with a study that we are doing, a randomized control trial funded by the NIH, comparing sedation regimens. All my other financial support is through the Department of Anesthesiology at Vanderbilt, as well as from the National Institutes of Health. Thank you. So this talk or this podcast today is focused on your session or your panel at the last uh, SCCM. You know, you spoke a lot about uh, critical illness and neurocognitive effects of critical illness. So could you give us an overview of the topic? Sure, Ajit. So it's important to realize that about 6 million patients are admitted to the intensive care unit in the United States alone. And with the advances in modern medicine, about three and a half to 4 million patients survive the critical illness. While that is great, it's important to realize that a significant proportion of our patients also have life-altering, long-term impact of their critical illness. And this, you know, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and other investigators have termed it as the post-intensive care syndrome. And that is where patients are having impairments with cognitive function, having impairments with their functional status, as well as mental illness, which prevents them from going back to enjoying the same quality of life that they were enjoying before. And so really the focus of critical care providers now needs to move away from just survival to survivorship. And that I think is the biggest challenge for all of us is to make sure that we are not satisfied with just getting patients out of our ICU, but really getting them to a state where they would want to be back to their families, back to their work, being part of the social structure. And that is really an important area. And so the three big areas that I was talking about, and we can delve into this a little deeper, is cognitive impairment. And if you look at some of the data that are recently available, about 30 to 40% of patients who survive a critical illness have pretty significant cognitive impairment, like recovery after a moderate traumatic brain injury. If you look at functional impairments, about 30% again of patients have functional impairments, which prevent them from getting back to the activities of daily living. And then mental illness is an area that you know, we don't focus a lot on, but patients after they survive a critical illness, and sometimes even the caregivers have depression, 
and have PTSD. So these are areas that we need to be aware of because it prevents these patients from going back to enjoying the same quality of life that they would want to enjoy. So when you mentioned about, you know, a lot of these patients fail to get to a full recovery, what exactly do you mean by full recovery? Would it be someone who was, would the expectation be that, let's say someone who was golfing gets, a, gets some critical illnesses in the ICU for a month, comes out of the ICU, is back, back on the fields golfing, would that be full recovery? Is that what thinking about or is it mainly cognitive full recovery? How do you differentiate between physical or cognitive recoveries in these patients? So I think if you ask your patient, we probably want full recovery in all aspects, right? So I don't think it's possible to differentiate or weigh one type of recovery over the other. Of course, there has been a lot of focus on the functional part of it because that's easy to see. You know, a family member or your friend was capable of doing certain things functionally and is incapable of doing those elements. Now, those are important because basic activities of daily living. You want to be able to make sure that these patients are able to take care of themselves with regards to bathing, feeding themselves, etc. But as our population is aging, it's really important that these patients are also able to do the independent activities of daily living or the instrumental activities of daily living, which adds elements such as managing their finances, you know, determining how to actually make some decisions with regards to managing their families, cooking, etc. So I think those are really important and dependent on what was important for the patient upfront. Now the cognitive part, it really is important from the aspects of integration back into the workforce, etc. So if you were a patient who enjoyed a high level of cognitive stress and in their workplace, it's important that those elements of memory, word processing, etc., are retained because, you know, to go back to work, if your job required calculations, you know, where memory, etc., was important, or processing speed, it's difficult for those patients then to get back to their work. So I don't think it's clear as to which or whether it is true also, whether one is more important than the other. But I think getting them back to what their baseline was is important. Now, with certain things after surgery, you would say, well, you would hope that they are even better their baseline, better than their baseline. So somebody who is having orthopedic surgery for a need that has to be replaced, etc., you want them to be functionally better than what they were because that's why they had the surgery. But at the risk of having cognitive impairment afterwards, that is a risky proposition. So I think that is where the balance is important. You're, in your talk, you mentioned multiple times the brain ICU cohort, and you are looking to uh, looking at outcomes at four to six years. And you've already studied, actually published outcomes for uh, for one year. Um, what what interesting outcomes have you found, you know, uh, in this cohort that there was surprise that was a surprise for you, or you were not expecting to find? Yes, yeah, so just for the audience to understand what the brain ICU cohort was. Um, so the brain ICU cohort was an 821 patient cohort of patients who were in medical ICU or surgical ICUs with relative sort of bread and butter critical illness diagnosis. So they were there for respiratory failure or for shock. So unlike prior studies, which have focused on either ARDS or on sepsis, this is a cohort of patients with these two broad categories 
which uh, defines majority of patients who have critical illness. The other aspect of it was that we, we followed these patients, so these 821 patients prospectively with detailed in-hospital data and then followed them up for multiple years after they survived their critical illness. What is published are the findings at three months and one year. And as I mentioned in the talk, uh, we have the four and six year follow-ups uh, being completed right now. Now, in this patient population, about 6% of patients had some element of mild cognitive impairment coming into the cohort using surrogate questionnaires because you know, critically ill patients don't tell us that they're going to come to the ICU. So pre-ICU assessments are not easy, but you can use surrogates. So despite the fact that only 6% of patients came in with pre-ICU cognitive impairment, at the one-year mark, about 30% of our patients had cognitive impairment in the realm of moderate traumatic brain injury survivors. So if you take a moderate traumatic injury patient who survives and you assess them at one year, the scores that those patients were having were similar to our patients who survived a critical illness in about 30 to 40%. What was even more surprising was that in about 20% of our patients, their scores were similar to what patients would have if they were doing the same cognitive battery and had mild Alzheimer's disease. So significant proportion of patients having cognitive impairment. The other elements that we were looking at was the ability to therefore translate this cognitive impairment and how that would impact their work status. So of the people who were fully employed prior to their critical illness, only 40% were back to full-time employment even a year later. So this is not just about scores being one standard deviation or two standard deviations below population norms, this has an impact because these patients were not able to go back to the workforce similar to how they were prior to their critical illness. And then the other parts in the brain ICU cohort that we found was that many patients, about 30% of patients had functional impairments, about 30% of patients had depression. Now, most of this depression that we were seeing was not severe depression. A small proportion of patients had severe depression, and most of the depression was of the somatic subtype. The other part, which was in a follow-up study of the brain ICU cohort, but it's important, is that about 7% of these patients had PTSD anchored to their ICU experience. Now, there have been other studies which have shown much higher rates of PTSD, but in the brain ICU cohort using DSM criteria, and looking at all the criteria required for PTSD, it was about 7%. Many of the patients, a much higher proportion, about 30 to 40% of patients had some of the symptoms of PTSD, such as the hyper arousal, the hyper uh, avoidance behaviors, et cetera. But full-blown PTSD was about 7%. And that's important to realize because in the civilian population, rates of PTSD are about 2%. In combat veterans, rates of PTSD are about 10%. And so this is sort of right in the middle over there. It's much more than what the civilian population sees, but it's almost at par with combat veterans uh, with regards to PTSD. And then the last part of the brain ICU cohort, which is important and where you know, we can actually make an impact on perhaps these uh, patients is that we were looking at what the risk factors were for the cognitive impairment that is seen in patients. And one of the strongest risk factors, which is potentially modifiable, was the duration of delirium in the ICU. So the longer the duration of delirium 
that these patients had in the ICU. The worst test scores were on the neuropsychological battery that we had performed. And so that may be an area that one can actually put into practice in the clinical setting uh, because it, the ramifications are much more than just in the ICU, but on long-term cognitive impairment. So this is a lot of information for our listeners and some great, uh, great notes can be taken. I actually took some notes from um, what you were talking, what you're talking about right now. Uh, and I had a few questions. You mentioned uh, surrogate assessment measures, people coming into the ICU. Uh, what measures did you, uh, did you and your team use for uh, these ICU patients? Yeah, so we used a battery called the IQ code. And so the IQ code is a surrogate, surrogates who knew the patient for at least 10 years. So this is not someone who has just come into contact with this patient, but has known them really well. And they answer a battery of questions to be able to tell us what have been the changes in this patient over the last 10 years and to see what their cognitive trajectory was prior to their coming to the ICU. So it's a well-validated instrument um, that can be used. And so we use that as our first step. And those patients who scored really poorly on the IQ code, we also then used a second um, test called the clinical uh, dementia rating instrument. And so as a secondary measure to then screen further for patients with significant dementia, we use the CDR on patients who had poor IQ code scores to try and really nail down as best as we could from a surrogate uh, instrument, how many patients had prior cognitive impairment. And as I mentioned, a small proportion had, but uh, nothing compared to what was seen after patients survived their critical illness and were evaluated a year later. Sorry, the other interest, interesting thing that you mentioned was 7% of the survivors had PTSD, which, um, as you made us aware, is a, is a pretty big number when compared to civilian civilians. Um, were, were these PTSDs associated with certain medication use? Was it associated with severity of illness? Um, what is the biggest association with the percentage of uh, PTSD in this patient population? So in this study, one of the things that we did was we assessed these patients for exposure to prior traumatic life events because we wanted to take that into account. And then in addition to that, we were looking at the PTSD specifically related to the ICU experience. So the, the PTSD checklist that we used as our instrument can be anchored to certain events. And in this case, all the questions were anchored to the ICU state. But based on the traumatic life event questionnaire that we did and the assessments for prior PTSD that we did, one of the biggest risk factors for PTSD is prior PTSD, even for other reasons. So you may have had PTSD because of a prior traumatic life event. That puts you at risk. Depression is another factor that puts you at risk. So prior depression puts you at high risk for PTSD. The data on delirium uh, in the ICU and a risk factor for PTSD, there are some studies which have shown an association between delirium in the ICU and PTSD. There are some studies which have shown an association between lorazepam use and PTSD. We didn't find that specifically in our study, but there are other studies which have shown that. And one of the interesting things about uh, the data on PTSD is many people in the past have felt that patients in the ICU need to be comatose so that they don't remember anything of their ICU stay so that they don't have any PTSD related to that. However, there are 
a fair amount of data showing that actually patients who have factual memories of their ICU state, even if it's painful, but factual memories of their ICU state, they tend to process that information better and have less PTSD. And those patients who perhaps have deep levels of sedation or have medications which result in delusional memories of their ICU state actually do worse. So the entire concept of keeping patients amnestic of their ICU state to try and prevent PTSD is debunked. And I think, uh, you know, we all as caregivers need to be aware of that and have our patients awake, aware of their surroundings, not amnestic, so that they can actually be able to process all the memories that they have in the ICU state and reduce PTSD perhaps at the back end. I think this is an excellent take-home point. Factual memories are better and it's, uh, it's important that we don't use medications that create false memories or create the amnestic effects, especially, you know, um, I know you mentioned that Ativan or Lorazepam in your group did not, was not associated with uh, PTSD, but it's, you know, benzos are known to be drugs which are amnestic or have amnestic effects. And a lot of ICUs, um, I hope, are not using as much of benzos as um, you know, a lot of the older studies claimed to be available in the ICUs. So I think that was that was a very good point and very well made. You know, we were talking about risk factors. I want to keep I want to keep going up on those risk factors for you know cognitive impairment. Uh, in your talk, you did mention uh, the principle of reserve capacity framework, which was uh, I think a psychological story or uh, more of a psych um, uh, study group which looked at how well patient was before in terms of education, in terms of plasticity of the brain is what I would use as a term. Um, is that the right way of thinking about this framework? Yes, yeah, so I think it's important to think about patients with regards to their vulnerabilities and then the precipitant factors that impact these patients. And sort of that's where there's the seesaw where patients with high vulnerabilities might have a worse outcome with the smallest precipitant factor versus patients with lower vulnerabilities might require a relatively high precipitant to have some of these long-term impairments that we see. And uh, with regards to the cognitive reserve hypothesis that I had uh, presented, there are at least uh, data from the traumatic brain injury literature, there are data from the Alzheimer's literature, et cetera, that patients who have significant education significant complexity of occupational tasks, etc., tend to have lower impairments for the same amount of injury. So if you think about in a broad term, blood in brain after a TBI, those with higher education for the same amount of blood in brain tend to have better outcomes than those with a lower education. And this all may tie in to lower education associated with socioeconomic status, the financial ability, uh, and therefore, when you have an injury and you have recovery, you have a lot more stress because you have to try and figure out how to get back to work. Your loved one has to give up work, sometimes stay with you. And all that stress then prevents you from being resilient. And so I think all this gets tied in that if you have a good education, socioeconomic status, et cetera, you might have the ability to fight stress and be a lot more resilient, and that might impact your recovery after a critical illness. 
So basically your support system and your education are uh, major factors that determine your long-term outcomes after critical illness. Agreed. And, you know, there may be other factors within the ICU which are potentially modifiable, but these big elements, I think, definitely play a role in recovery after a critical illness. Does the type of critical illness affect these outcomes, like, you know, sepsis, or let's say, um, you know, we were talking about TBI, or, you know, severe trauma, let's say with injury severity scores of more than 12 or 16, you know, does, do these conditions affect how patients progress in their critical illness? So, you know, it depends on some of the studies you've looked at. Um, in some of the studies, we have seen a clear association between the sepsis episode and the changing of trajectory of your cognitive impairment. So there may be some role of sepsis. Other studies have looked at delirium in the ICU, and this is what the brain ICU study showed, that delirium in the ICU was associated with worse outcomes. Now, the question is whether delirium is an independent predictor. That is what the brain ICU study showed, but there could be some mediation that severity of illness has its impact through delirium or the sedative medications that we use have its impact through the delirium that patients have. So I think overall patients with high severity of illness, patients who have significant exposure to psychoactive medications, to delirium, perhaps secondary to those psychoactive medications, all are predisposed to higher or worse outcomes. And on the other hand, the other impact would be age playing a role in all this. In our studies, age was not associated with it but that may be something that is also being shown in other studies that higher age puts you at a trajectory for worse outcomes. You know, the roles of uh, anesthetics and the surgical procedures is debatable. Uh, While some studies have shown that you have cognitive impairment after a major surgical procedure, it's not clear whether it is the vulnerabilities that brought the patient to the hospital for that major surgery and what happened to them after that. At least some new data are showing that perhaps it is not the anesthetics per se or the inflammation that goes on with that surgical procedure, but again, a balance between the precipitating factors and the vulnerabilities that ultimately impact the outcomes. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. As an anesthesiologist, I was, I was, I had, I had in my mind to ask you about effects of anesthesia on these outcomes, but you, uh, you already answered that. So, um, you know, moving on to a little bit of stuff that involves, you know, the renal system, the neurocognitive, neuroendocrine, immune, you know, uh, which is this whole talk or the whole panel was about a lot of these things. Where do you, where do you feel, you know, very generally speaking, where do you feel, and how do you feel these systems are affected by critical illness? So I think one of the common things in this uh, organ recovery discussion that we were having is the role of inflammation. And I think that is an area that there is a fair amount of work going on. And inflammation is also then associated with endothelial dysfunction. And whether there is cycle from that standpoint where you have 
significant inflammation and the inflammation could start in the periphery, but then there is crosstalk obviously with the brain. So you can have the start in the periphery, but then you have neuroinflammation and then neuroinflammation then becomes the engine driving it further. You know, the role of the microglia, the role of the astrocytes, et cetera, are really being uh, looked into for this. But inflammation is one big element, I think, where there is a fair amount of overlap between what we're seeing in the organ dysfunctions overall after critical illness. And then the other area that is being studied is endothelial dysfunction. And you know, the endothelium plays an important role. It covers a large proportion of our body and it protects at least the brain from seeing some of the toxic substances that otherwise they could be exposed to. And if you think about the inflamed brain, then having a leaky endothelium, and that then results in toxins that make it to the brain, which otherwise would not have. And this could also happen in other organs. So I think that's how a lot of this is tied into. Vanderbilt has always been uh, in the forefront on delirium studies. And um, what do you think is coming out next from uh, your institute or from, or from your group uh, addressing this major, major issue in critical care? So I think before I uh, go into what uh, we are focusing on as far as future, I think one of the areas that uh, perhaps listeners would be uh, interested in learning about is the entire ABCDF framework, which is being um, implemented through the ICU liberation campaign. And the ABCDF framework, and along with that is the new PADIS guidelines that the Society of Critical Care Medicine has implemented. But the ABCDF framework stands for, you know, the A being for assessment and a management of pain. B is both awakening and spontaneous breathing trials. C is choosing the right sedative when one needs a sedative in an ICU patient, so all patients don't need it. D is delirium monitoring and then management. E, early mobility. And F is the family involvement. And this framework is built on individual studies which have shown that each of these elements have been associated with significantly improved outcomes. And then the Society of Critical Care Medicine through the ICU Liberation Campaign has taken the entire framework, implemented it in multiple ICUs with you know, 15,000 patients now showing that ICUs which really pay attention to these critical supportive elements of critical illness and really try and hit all the elements of this framework those patients do much better. They have mortality benefits. They have benefits with regards to delirium, with regards to time on mechanical ventilation in the ICU. So I think as a learning point, that is something while we are doing all the other important elements in critical illness, such as treating the sepsis, et cetera, not to forget these supportive parts, which have to start right from day one, not as an afterthought. So it's not the back end of critical illness, but right from the front, we need to start getting patients awake, mobilized, interactive, trying to get them back on the feet. So that's something that we have started uh, and has now been taken up by a number of uh, large organizations to push forward. So I think that's an important thing to put in. The other areas that I think we are now focusing on is one is to go back and really understand the pathology and mechanisms of this cognitive impairment. So it's 
it's a great starting point to realize that this is a problem, but to really have targeted therapies to improve outcomes, we're going to have to know the detailed mechanisms of that. And so that is an area that we are focusing on right now. And then the other elements that we want to look at are the roles of rehabilitation programs and how we can do that in a cost-effective manner, because that is an area that we would need to focus. And the third part is whether we can actually try and implement prehab or prehabilitation techniques. So we know at least in patients coming in for major surgery, we have a window of opportunity where we may be able to optimize these patients prior to their major insert. And while in the past, the focus has been only on physical prehabilitation, you know, expanding this to try and ensure that they are physically prepared for it, that there is some element of cognitive prehabilitation, optimized nutrition, perhaps certain expectations, coping mechanisms, mindfulness, et cetera. So really do a holistic approach for our patients to get them prepared for a major insult that they're going to undertake to hopefully have significantly improved outcomes. So those are areas that we are focusing on. The other areas are also to try and understand the true extent of brain dysfunction that patients have in the ICU. So a lot of focus has been on delirium, this focus on coma, but more recently there has been an interest in whether catatonia is another form of brain dysfunction and whether catatonia is seen in patients with delirium, whether it's additive, how all this plays in, we don't know, but we cannot ignore it because studies have recently shown that it does occur in a sizable proportion of our patients. And then the last thing that I would say is that while in the past we've all thought that these are issues that plague our elderly patients, there has been a renewed interest in understanding the role of delirium, the role of sedation in our most vulnerable patients are pediatric patients who also have critical illness, who also suffer from delirium. And now we are realizing that these patients also have some of the long-term cognitive impairments as well as the neuropsychological dysfunction that are seen. So we cannot ignore that patient population and that is an area that we are further looking into. Now, this all sounds, we are always at our institute trying to implement new things. The implementations comes with, you need a lot of support to implement stuff. So that's, it's always an uphill challenge, but it's always great to hear from leaders in the field what needs to be done uh, in order to improve outcomes in these patients. You know, I, I wanted to touch on a couple of things that have recently caught, you know, interest of a lot of providers. One is, uh, one was one of the questions that was asked to you at the at the talk on music therapy. And uh, the second was, uh, the second uh, that I would like to ask you is, where do ICU di- diaries and uh, family involvement play, in, uh, play into decreasing, you know, either post-traumatic uh, ICU uh, disorder or stress disorders, or even improving gap that the patient feels he had in the ICU? So I think music therapy is interesting from some of the literature that is available. Music therapy does seem to have an impact on reducing anxiety, et cetera, during critical illness or after major surgery. It's an area that we really need to work on. And it's the intersection between noise, alarms, music, because all of them tie in together. And so 
it cannot be done in isolation. And there are groups now working on trying to understand how we can optimize the noise and alarms in the ICU, and then perhaps then incorporate music, and then what type of music, because you know all patients won't like the same kind of music, so how all that factors in, that needs to be studied. There are um, groups that are looking at pet therapy, and perhaps that may be an area um, for the future. And then uh, one of the uh, things that you brought up was the role of the ICU um, diary. And I think the important part, and there has been work done with the ICU diary showing that it reduces PTSD, et cetera. And I think the role of the ICU diary is to try and fill those gaps in where patients often wonder what they remember, whether it was real or whether it was a delusional memory. And the ICU diary hopefully fills that gap. There is uh, a group that has been working with uh, veterans uh, looking at songwriting for PTSD, where the songwriting is a musical exposition of the ICU diary in a way that you create songs to try and put together your ICU memories. And that has been shown to be helpful in, in veterans after combat. And uh, there are some researchers now trying to put that into practice for critical illness. Can we have songwriting and Nashville is a good place to try and at least get that going. So can we use songwriting to try and prevent PTSD in ICU survivors, similar to the ICU diary. So I think all those are helpful and the family also then plays a role, not only for that support system that I talked about earlier, which helps um, with perhaps patients being less stressful and able to be more resilient and bounce back, but also to fill in those gaps when patients have certain memories, family members can remind them saying, yes, what you saw was real, that was your dialysis machine, or really you have this memory that so-and-so came and saw you, your doctor or your other healthcare provider looked just like that person. So it's not that, that you have a delusional memory, it is someone like that who was seen. And I think helping patients process that really is an important part and families play a big role. And ultimately families are also there to try and advocate for their loved one, they are their best advocates, and it helps trying to prevent some of the medical errors that do happen. So I think families play a very important role. I think the take home message for me is that one of the biggest challenges for the 21st century is survivorship. You know, we cannot be satisfied just getting patients out of our ICU. We have to focus our attention on getting these patients back to the quality of life, to the work environment, to the social interaction that they were enjoying before. And as our population ages, this is really going to be of significant importance because it's otherwise gonna put a significant burden on society and we have an important role. And that there are elements, as we've discussed with the ABCDF framework, et cetera, that there are elements that we can do to try and prevent patients from having worse outcomes after critical illness. And so the onus is on us. I totally agree. And the onus is on us and our teams in the ICUs to help improve these outcomes. So this concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. It's always a pleasure to interview fellow anesthesiologists and intensivists. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Ranjit Deshpande. Thank you, Dr. Pandre Pandey. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. 
When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Dr. Ranjit Despande. Dr. Ranjit Despande is an intensivist and an anesthesiologist at the Yale New Haven Hospital, YNHH. His interests include organ transplantation and point-of-care ultrasound. He currently is the director for transplant anesthesiology at YNHH. He is actively involved in resident education. Dr. Despande grew up in India and graduated from the BJ Medical College in Pune, India. He came to the United States to pursue a residency in anesthesiology at the University of Miami Jackson Hospital, after which he joined the Johns Hopkins University as a fellow in critical care medicine. His interests outside of medicine include spending time with his family, playing tennis, and squash. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.